What is going on, everybody? It is Triple Crown 24, the new episode of the Sports Card Psychology Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. This will be a solo episode this week. Took a bit of a break last Thursday. Uh, decided to get caught up on some work. Apparently, a lot of the episodes weren't syncing up to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you may get this show aside from YouTube. So I do apologize for that. I believe that issue is now resolved. And just some some personal things going on kind of kept me out of the recording booth, if you will, uh, last week. But back this week for a solo episode, I've got some really cool interviews lined up for the coming weeks. But today's topic is one that I have a lot of material on, and I wanted to uh, take a deep dive into it because it is something that I deal with daily in the hobby. And it may not necessarily be me using this tool. It may just be seeing other people use it or other people mentioning it. And that would be this two-word phrase that is often used only with one word that I hear almost every day in the hobby, if not every day, eBay comps, or more simply put, comps. So what do I mean by this? For those who are unfamiliar with the term comps, it is a shorthand way of saying completed sales. And the premise of it is to see via eBay, that's why the eBay tag is often attached to it, what certain items, or in this case, certain cards have sold for, or some people will say comped for, uh, on the secondary market. And through that, you can go on to uh, whatever side of the browser you may be using. If it's on a phone, I believe it's on the right side. If you're using a desktop, typically on the left, you can filter eBay search results for sold listings. And with that, it will show you auction prices that were realized, uh, meaning that the auction was successfully completed in terms of it ran its course for one day, three days, seven days, however long it was supposed to, and that there was a winner determined. If you want to define successful as that, that's that's 100% true. That's not necessarily what I would define as a successfully completed auction. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the show. Uh, you can also see on fixed price items, so those with buy it nows or best offers, if there was an offer accepted, you can see that something sold outright for a certain price or that a best offer was accepted. This part is a little bit tricky. Uh, eBay used to be able to, you, you could go into the source code and you'd be able to see what a buyer actually paid on a best offer price. That loophole has kind of been closed, but there are uh, resources such as eBay's own Terapeak research tool, which uh, is essentially a, a comp tool uh, that can be used for anything on eBay's site. There are also third-party applications, uh, both past, such as a watch count, or present with 130 point being one of the most popular ones, which has recently integrated sales data for my slabs as well, which is cool. Uh, kind of expanding that idea of uh, different platforms out there, out there to pull this data from. But largely speaking, the number one by far and away undisputed source to get this data point from is eBay. Now, why do people use this and why is it so prevalent in the hobby today? Those are really two big questions that I wanted to answer here at the start of the show. And this is, again, personal opinion here. 
but I believe people want to use this as a buyer to make sure that they are not overpaying for something and as a seller to avoid selling something for too cheap. Uh, as consumers and sellers in any kind of market space, we are naturally inclined to get the best deal possible or get the most money possible for a product or service we may have. And it makes sense, right? You go to the grocery store and two identical uh, boxes of crackers, we'll say, are $4 and $5, respectively. And they taste about the same, relatively the same brand. You go with the $4 one, right? Why would you pay the premium for the $5 one unless it's supposed to be some kind of status symbol? That does happen from time to time. But for the most part, most consumers are going to pay the lower price. Or if you're going to fill up uh, your tank with gasoline, and there's two gas stations across the street. One of them is five cents cheaper. Unless you have something against that brand, you're typically going to go to the one that's a tad cheaper. Uh, so that is often the case. And as a seller, you often want to get the most that you possibly can uh, exchange for your goods or services, right? If you're, if you're going out and negotiating a salary for a job, you want to get paid the most you possibly can in exchange for your services that you are providing to your employer. So that is just basic economics and basic uh, ways that we're wired as human beings when it comes to economic decisions and uh, purchasing power as consumers. So this tool is excellent in showing what people in theory, keywords there in theory, have actually paid for certain cards. And I think this becomes more important as the cards become more common, right? If you have, for example, a Luka Doncic PSA 10 Prism Rookie, it's fairly easy to gauge a sense of what that card should be worth based on solely using the completed sales tool. Uh, just because there's such a high volume of them that gets sold, there are probably a dozen or so that are sold every single day in various grades uh, in terms of a specific PSA 10 maybe if a little bit less, but a card that is constantly available for sale, uh, there's a very strong supply of them on the market. Is it an endless supply? It may feel like that, but no, there is a, a finite supply of them out there. It just happens to be that they are frequently made available and they are not particularly rare um, in any sense. So it is much easier to get that uh, and kind of, use that to your advantage too because a lot of people have these for sale and of course when supply is there oftentimes uh, if the demand is not there to meet that it allows a lot of power to move into the corner of the consumer who can kind of make sellers compete against each other to who will offer the lowest price uh, i think it becomes less reliable as a card becomes more rare or there are fewer data points to use in the uh, timeline of sales. So that's something that we'll talk about a little bit later on in the show. But these are instances where it would be useful to you. Um, or if you're a seller who's looking to kind of gauge the value of your card or say that you pull a card out of a pack or a box and you want to know how much is it worth. Well, that's often the first place that people will turn to make that determination. And before I start to kind of dissect this topic here, I do want to make one 
important precedent and clarification for this discussion is that I use the completed sales data daily for what I do in the hobby. It could be buying cards, it could be selling cards, it could be trading cards. I use it at least once a day, every single day, if not more often. There are times where my eBay search history is just containing results from that very day and all my previous searches have been pushed down uh, the, the search history just because I've searched for so many different cards in one day. So that is something that, uh, that I want everyone to keep in mind before we get into this. But uh, what kind of has spurred this discussion is a few events recently where I've seen some deals. I've actually gotten some deals as well where the completed sales tool failed the seller. Now, immediately you can make the argument, well, what if they just didn't care and they wanted to just sell it for cheap? And you know what? Fair point. Maybe it's just me making assumptions, but based on the context of the situations that I have seen, I don't think that is the case, or it would be extremely unlikely that that is the case, so hence why I say that. And the completed sales tool, although the information is present to you, it can be dangerous. Now, what do I mean by dangerous? It's not going to cause you any physical harm, of course, but it can cause you to make misinformed decisions based on this data. And on top of that, too, it may um, force you to make decisions that damper your hobby experience. So the, the goal of this show today is to not completely bash those who use comps or to be the old man in the rocking chair shaking his fist to say, oh, I hate that comps are so prevalent in the hobby today and that's all people ever say. That's not the point of this show. The point of this show is to examine what are some of the flaws based on the mindset that has led to comps being a widely used tool, almost as widely used as, say, a Beckett price guide was back in the 80s or even into the 90s as well. So that is the objective here. And I have five flaws to discuss today and kind of how you can navigate these flaws. So here we go. Number one is the unfortunate practice of shill bidding and cancellation of bids. So shill bidding is a practice where uh, auctions are artificially inflated by a buyer who maybe they are the actual owner who is using a secondary or burner account to bid on it, or they're using their own account to bid on an auction that is done through a consignment service. Uh, it is a practice that is supposed to get you kicked off of eBay, and most of our platforms have a zero tolerance for shill bidding. Does it go on? Undoubtedly, it goes on. And there are certain sellers out there without mentioning any names where immediately people go, oh, well, this was their auction. This this was definitely shill bid. And there are ways to tell uh, in a bid history to kind of see what has been shill bid. You can see what some of the other uh, sales were for a card if it has a lot of data points to it for its sales history allows you to more easily identify outliers. And that also may be a indication of shill bidding there as well. Another thing would be canceled bids. So bids that are canceled before uh, buyers may have a chance to react to it. So if a, a bid is successfully canceled, that will of course lower the price 
and then it kind of screws the seller if the bidders do not pick up the slack uh, for that canceled bid. So for example, if I have say a card that typically sells for $100, it gets bid up to 40 and then someone puts in or two accounts uh, would have to bid against each other where it gets up to $200 and then that bid is canceled, all of a sudden the price would drop back down. And if there's not enough time left in the auction uh, for people to recognize this, maybe the card only sells for 50 or 60 bucks. So that is uh, that is an unfortunate practice in, in both these things, I think, from a moral perspective, are wrong to do. Uh, also, in terms of if you want to play it by the book, both of these practices are frowned on. Uh, canceled bids are a mechanic of eBay. They are a mechanic of most auction houses, I would say, from personal experience. But generally, they are only accepted if there is a valid reason. In some places, it is definitely easier to get away with it than other places. Uh, some places have a zero tolerance policy just because of the shenanigans that having such a policy, such as allowing buyers to cancel their bids, allows for uh, auction manipulation. So that is something to keep in mind. And what this can do is artificially inflate or deflate the price of something. And as a seller, you absolutely love it if it's artificially inflated, right? Because all of a sudden there is this new data point that's going to bump up your median, your average, these other uh, tools of measurement when it comes to numbers and pricing. Uh, so you can say that and maybe claim that a card is on the rise if the last data point was a shield bid uh, for an auction of said card. And part of why we see this being so common, why this continue, this practice continues to go on, is you may see people who are not even the owners of the card or have no desire to buy the card bidding it up for the sake of inflating the comps because they actually own another copy of the card that they're looking to sell. So, of course, if that card starts selling for more, all of a sudden they are allowed to ask for more for it as well. I've seen this happen uh, where people get messages. They've posted screen captures where people will ask, why did you sell it for this? And they're upset at a seller for selling a similar card for a certain price because the other buyer, the other seller, potential seller now believes, oh, well now I can't get this number that I wanted for it because this person accepted that. And maybe that's true, maybe it's not. I think it really just depends on what the card is. Uh, but that is another thing that, that unfortunately does happen with this. So what can you do to protect yourself? Well, the reputation for the services where shield bidding is prominent and the sellers where there's a lot of shield bidding practices that go on are pretty well known. Uh, a quick Google search or a, just asking around various hobby message boards or social media channels will get you a pretty clear-cut list and you'll see a lot of overlapping answers if you were to ask people where does shield bidding take place within the hobby which sellers is it most prevalent with and that will immediately um, get that get that on your radar and you'll be able to keep that in mind when you're going to sell something or if you're going to buy something as well knowing which auctions uh, for completed sales were artificially inflated and therefore, maybe that data isn't a true representation of what a card's actual value should be or what would be a good price to buy the card at for uh, your collection or whatever purpose you may want the card.
So that's number one is shilled and canceled bids, uh, skewing the data and manipulating the data. Second point of address, I, I mentioned this earlier that the term comps is often shortened from even eBay comps, which is shortened for eBay completed sales. Uh, but to view eBay as the ultimate and sole destination for online auction services in 2022 would be incredibly naive. There are a plethora of platforms out there. You have more of a lifestyle sale platform with some things such as Whatnot and Loop. You have uh, more niche sites or more sites that have more of a cult following, such as a, a star stock. You can sell cards on there. You can sell cards on a place such as MySlabs. Uh, there's also platforms that aren't even necessarily geared towards cards. I mentioned this earlier. You know, eBay is not a just a card website. It just happens to be in the most prevalent place for us to sell cards uh, as hobbyists. It has the largest volume of cards being sold, but there are dozens, well, maybe not dozens, but at least a dozen auction houses out there of various sizes, some more reputable and well-known than others, and some have auctions that uh, sometimes only some of us can partake in uh, just because of what the minimum bids or the asking prices are on a lot of the items. But that is a, a myth that there are only high price autumn uh, items at auction houses. There are plenty of budget items that are available. Uh, just sometimes it requires a bit more searching uh, than what meets the eye initially. There's also your non-specified platforms. So those auction houses, often they will deal with various antiques and collectibles outside of just sports cards. It could be memorabilia, could be really anything. But then you have places such as Facebook Marketplace, Mercari, uh, let go these various apps or uh, selling platforms where things aren't necessarily meant to be uh, card oriented, but there is a significant presence of sellers for those types of items on there. Or even places that aren't even intended to be a selling platform, such as Twitter or Instagram. Instagram is huge. Uh, I believe TikTok is as well. I'm not on TikTok. I don't really know how it works. But uh, from my understanding is that there are people who have come over from tip, uh, TikTok to various applications that I use who had hobby success there uh, selling whatever it is that they were looking to sell. So to say that eBay is the only place where you can obtain these data points for online sales is simply inaccurate. And that's just looking at the online sales. There is, of course, sales that go down at your local card shops, card shows. There's more card shows than ever. Uh, trade nights, there's more trade nights than ever. And those types of sales aren't recorded. Uh, you could have someone go and post on the internet that they made this deal, but there's really no way to back them up. It's kind of just hearsay on those types of deals. Uh, point being that it's not the only platform to find these sales points. And often I find that the eBay prices are often the lowest prices that you'll find most of the time on a lot of these cards. Um, there are definitely exceptions, of course, there are exceptions. But a lot of times I find that a lot of people are getting more money for certain cards on different platforms than eBay. And also keeping in mind that the uh, fees on eBay for sellers are among the highest out there for all of the different uh, platforms in which you know, currency is exchanged. And 
the platform itself is taking a cut of that sale. So something to keep in mind there. Uh, how can you use this to your advantage? That's a very good question. And that would be to keep an open mind, right? If you use 130 point now, it is great that my slabs is integrated in it, but that is still only a very small piece of the pie. It's something that you have to account for, especially if it's something that's rare. More on that here in a moment. Uh, but just relying on the on the data points from eBay, if something seems off, if maybe something seems like it's it's too low or perhaps it's too high, use your best judgment. Uh, sometimes your intuition will serve you much better than any of these data points or uh, completed sales will. So again, trust your intuition. This is a tool, not a definitive guideline. That moves into number three. And this is something else that you will have to use your own judgment for uh, to really determine scarcity on this. But eBay completed sales does not account for current market supply and demand, right? Let's say, for example, that I was looking to buy a 2018 Prism Luka Doncic Blue Prism Rookie. I didn't care what the grade was because it's, I think those are out of like 149 or 199. There's not too many of them out there. Still 200. That's, that's a lot, uh, you know, on the high end, if maybe it's out of 249, whatever the case may be, there's a hundred to a couple hundred at most, uh, out there available to possibly be available for sale. How many of those are stuck in a collection where they're not available for sale? How many of those are still sealed in packs? How many of those are out of the hands of the owner where maybe they're locked away in some kind of vault service or they are off at a third-party grading service where they are kind of considered out of play temporarily uh, while they're being authenticated and graded? Those are questions that we don't know an exact answer to. What we can see is exactly how many are listed for sale on eBay in theory. Again, uh, eBay search results, you know, we, we mentioned this earlier that you can go and search for things and then search for completed sales, but that is reliant upon your ability to optimize a search engine to bring you all of the results possible, as well as the sellers of these cards uh, to also list their items in a way where they will show up with search engine optimization maximized. And that is not often the case. I see a lot of sellers who use very default, very generic uh, titles that oftentimes end up costing them huge on their listings because people simply can't find it. Uh, so a lot of those data points you may not even see, but even if you could see them, would they really be an accurate representation of what the market value is for a card? I'm not so convinced uh, just because I feel that a lot of times those are often victim of circumstance, especially if those listings are auctions and not fixed priced. So getting back on subject with the Luca though, uh, you can see roughly how many are available for sale. Let's say that I went out and bought every single one that was available for sale right now on eBay so that you could not find them. And I don't know how many of them are out there. Let's say just for simplicity's sake, I buy 10 of them that are available for sale. And those are the only 10 that are up for sale. 
Now, could someone who's been waiting for less of them to be on the market put theirs up or maybe they're in a pinch for money or maybe they just want to sell the card? Yeah, they could. They could do that. But now all of a sudden, let's say that I'm the only one who is going to put up one of my 10 that I purchased and I'm going to jack the price up. I'm going to put it up for double what I paid for it. Okay. People are going to then come to me and say, well, the comps say that it should go for this much. So would you do this much? And I'll say, nope, go find another one. They go to search. Mine is the only one in town. So now you have this conundrum as a buyer. You want the card, but I'm the only show in town. And I'm asking double what they have previously sold for. Now, odds are this is something that is going to come up to auction again or come up for sale again. But as a card becomes more and more rare, the likelihood of it popping up again decreases. Another part of that, too, is that as time goes on, the likelihood that a certain card will be listed also will decrease. And why is that? Well, people can't necessarily afford to open up 2018-19 Prism Wax anymore. It's just outside of the wheelhouse for many, and many people just aren't interested in it right now. Uh, they'd rather be chasing the newest product, the product that is more readily available. There's more of this product that is available to be opened as well. Uh, you don't see 2018 Prism at your local Target or Walmart if you're even able to find cards there. Those just, they aren't available for sale. Oftentimes you're going to have to buy them online from someone, uh, but that can be problematic if it's a seller that you don't necessarily trust. So Again, people aren't necessarily ripping the, the product. Also, as time goes on, people may feel that certain cards aren't necessarily worth it, quote unquote, for them to list. Uh, so maybe there's this parallel that you've been looking for personally of your favorite player that's only worth $5 uh, or they, they only sell for $5, let's say. But someone who has it, maybe they only deal with $100 cards and they say, you know what, this isn't worth it for me to put up. And it goes in a box and it sits there or it's in someone's dollar box at a show where someone's going to have to dig it out, usually someone like me, and then put it up for sale and make it available to you. That's where the problem kind of comes into play, where the completed sales are definitely great if there is a large supply out there. But if there's not a big supply out there, then how good is the data really going to do you? Uh, just because those who have the goods themselves kind of at that point get to reset the market, right? So they're able to kind of identify, okay, this card or this item is particularly rare and I'm not going to let it go for this cheap because I don't have to. I don't have to fall in line with recent completed sales. And oftentimes those are the types of cards where people are more likely to pay up for it just because they're just not as available. Or maybe it's a nice example of the card. And we're talking more so vintage when we discuss that. But that is part of it there. So how do you how do you navigate that as supply and demand? I would say as a buyer, what you have to ask yourself is, why are you interested in the card? Gauge your level of interest and realistically ask yourself, how long will it be before it comes up for sale again? And do you think that you can beat that price? Those are, again, questions that you have to answer for yourself and kind of what your criteria is uh, from those answers will help kind of shape your decision-making abilities as a consumer, right? 
If it is something that you feel is particularly rare that you cannot live without, then maybe you do need to pay above what the recent sales data shows. Again, it's all about personal choice and what you are willing to do as a consumer. You have to do what is best for you. That's kind of a running theme here uh, with this, and we'll, we'll discuss that more in the wrap-up. Number four, the idea of one price to rule them all, right? So this is more per particularly guided towards rare cards, right? And by rare cards, I'm talking about your serial numbered stuff, uh, cards with stated print runs that are particularly uh, low or perhaps special issue vintage cards, uh, especially pre-war, where there is just not a whole lot of them that become available for sale. You know, there are people who look for certain cards that don't go up for sale for years and years at a time, which is a very long time in the hobby. Um, Hobby years are, are not the same as real years, it feels oftentimes. So that is something to keep in mind is that, again, going back to the topic of supply and demand, that you, you may not see these items too often. But let's say that you do happen to stumble into a recent sale of an item. And this is a, a story that I will share. I have two stories for these last two. And it pertains to my 2012 Mike Trout printing plate. So I own the black printing plate one of one for Mike Trout from 2012 Topps Baseball. It is his second year card. Of course, his rookie being in 2011 Topps Update card 446 in Series 2 2012 Topps. And funny enough, this is a card that was nine years old when I purchased it. There was actually an auction for the magenta printing plate, also one of one, that had ended a few weeks before I traded slash bought this card at the National in 2021. And it showed the card going for $900. Now, you want to use that as a reference. I think that's completely fair game. For me, I personally like the black plates the most just because they show the most detail. This other one that had sold being magenta and it's an Angels card. It did give a lot of detail. Uh, I imagine it would look much better than the blue or, excuse me, the cyan or the yellow plate would. But the black plate is typically my favorite one, regardless of who the player or the team would be. And if I was someone looking to buy a card, I do put a higher emphasis or a higher value on the black plate often. I know printing plates are not for everyone. Some people claim they're out of four instead of out of one. We won't discuss that today. Um, but the price point on that trout plate was really something that I was able to use, use to my advantage because I thought 900 was low for that card. Uh, typically on those higher end cards of a player like that, you're really going to be targeting an audience of very devoted trout collectors or perhaps very, very devoted uh, set builders, team collectors, printing plate collectors even. So you're, you're automatically shrinking your audience just because of what the card is expected to go for at auction. But again, I thought the 900 was too low for it. But I was able to use that number kind of against the, the dealer at the table at the national to kind of lower the price down a bit. Uh, it was an auction that this one was sold at. 
And of course, I wanted a little bit of a better deal than what that one had sold for on eBay because I used the excuse of, well, you were to sell it for 900 on eBay, then you would have to take out your fees. So you're looking at closer to 800 and then you have to ship it to me. And if you want to insure it and all that and add signature confirmation and your time in there, you know, maybe you're looking at like $750 of actual value. And that was what I was able to knock the trade value down to that. And did I use the completed sales tool to my advantage there? Absolutely. And that I think it was worth more than that? Absolutely. That's why I made the trade in the first place. And I don't think that makes me a bad person. Um, if you disagree, you can let me know in the comments section of YouTube down below. But it is just me as a consumer trying to get the best price possible for something. Uh, and the idea of one price to rule them all, I think is very dangerous. Uh, just because if you see something that is exceptionally rare and someone sells it for way, way, way too low, just because maybe they need quick money, maybe they need uh, maybe they need to fund another purchase that they want to make. Maybe they're just not interested in the card. Maybe they just don't list it right. Maybe it gets overshadowed in an auction house's uh, auction because there's similar items that draws uh, players from the similar buyer pool away from it. And therefore, you're kind of left with a few people who maybe don't have as high of a budget bidding on it. And one of them ends up winning it for what is considered a deal. It's something that can definitely hurt you as a seller. If you know how to use it as a buyer, definitely try to take advantage of it, I would say, is, is my piece of advice there. But as a seller, uh, just know that if, if something sells one time and, and people want to kind of hold you hostage over it, you do not have to give in. Uh, another example of it, this was something that actually happened at my most recent show, is that I had a Joe Burrow card in my case that a buyer was looking to possibly trade or purchase. They had showed me one completed sale. Mine's in an SGC holder. Same card that sold one time in, a com in the completed sale. They told me what the price was. And they based it off of that. And they said, oh, it will probably go back up. This was way before the Super Bowl. So maybe it was a little low for them. So they're trying to maybe justify it. But at the end of the day, that was the price. That was what they valued it at. So I asked them, do you think that this one sale means that this is what this card is definitively worth? And they said, well, that's all I have to go off of. And I was probably willing to make a trade that would have potentially benefited them in the long run. Of course, I'm not going to make a trade where I think I'm going to lose. But I feel like what I was getting back was more so the safe play to kind of move out of as a dealer a little quicker. Uh, whereas the, I think the Burrow card that they were looking at from me has more potential to it uh, in terms of, you know, football season coming back around. The same thing that we hear over and over, right? And I wasn't going to budge because I know that mine is the only one available. If someone wants it, well, they're going to have to pay what I want for it. But to go off of that one data point, if we just went off of that until the end of time, then the card would never change in value, right? That's that's kind of one of the flawed mindsets with the completed sales tools. So uh, just know that uh, in any type of decision-making that you're you're using data or data points, a sample size is super duper critical. I never thought I'd say super duper on this podcast, but that's for lack of a better term. 
to make your decision, it is critical that you consider that sample size. Just because one data point in a sample size is not an accurate depiction of what is a true value. 40 data points gives you a lot more accuracy. And the more that you have, the more accurate it's going to be. And of course, on things that are particularly rare, well, there's probably not very much data to go off of. And you're going to have to kind of take what you can get. But again, you have to kind of consider the factors that I talked about earlier on. And also just how much you want it. It's <laughs> It can be a lot simpler than, than all this analytics and what I'm making it out to be. How much do you want the card? And if it's worth it to you at that price, go for it. So that's the biggest piece of advice I can give on any of that. Uh, the final problem, I guess, I have, or the final issue with eBay completed sales. This one is, uh, the other four won't matter if you don't have this one nailed down. And that would be that the information that you get from the completed sales data, whether it be on eBay itself, through Terapeak, through 130 point, is only as good as the information that you put into the search engine. So what do I mean by that? Again, let's go to story time here. The Dallas Card Show, right? I had purchased the Gleyber Torres 2018 Tops short print rookie for $2 in a PSA 9. And the reason for that, again, I can't assume that the dealer wasn't just trying to give me a good deal, but they had to look it up on the spot to give me my price. And that's something that I, I don't usually like to typically wait around. And usually someone whips out their phone and asks to, look up a price for me. I just, I, I want to walk around all the different tables or if I'm set up, I need to be able to be at my table to sell too. I don't really have time for that. So usually I, I walk away when that does happen. Uh, regardless, in this case, I was interested in the card. So I did stick around. It was still early in the show too. So it didn't feel as crunched for time. They look it up and they were looking at the complete set version of the card, which to give you an idea of the difference between the two, the complete set version, you get one guaranteed in every factory set. And there's a lot of factory sets out there. The short print card is typically there was either one of those or one of the Acuna bat downs in a jumbo case of 2018 top series two. That's just from back then remembering it, that's about how they felt. What are the actual odds of them? I don't really remember what the actual odds are, but the point is, is that you were not even guaranteed to get one in a hobby jumbo case. They weren't nearly as prevalent as the Vlad no number the year after or anything else that we've kind of seen in those regards. So again, this card is different, much different than the complete set version, but they were looking that up and saw that there were a few that had sold for, you know, three, four, five dollars, maybe up to eight or ten dollars on a more obscure sale. And he offered it to me for two bucks. Now was he giving me a deal? Of course he was. You know, he would have said five if he was trying to get what the complete set version was going for. But he offered it to me for two. But again, that decision was made based off of that data. I highly doubt that if we had talked about it and he knew exactly what the card was, that I would have been able to get it for two dollars. And that's not to be disrespectful to the dealer. That's not to be rude or condescending towards them and say, oh, well, he doesn't know nothing. But 
it was the over-reliance on that completed sales tool that ended up costing him, you know, some money on that sale. And now what do you, what do you have given me a deal regardless? Probably I would imagine just based on the tone of the conversation, that's all speculation on my end. I really can't say with certainty what the price would have been had he searched it correctly or comped it correctly. But that, that perfectly encapsulates the problem, right? And I see this happen often uh, with a lot of deals where people will put in the wrong information into the search engine or they will search for the wrong card entirely or they won't know how to optimize a search engine to get as many results as possible or maybe they will mistake one of the cards that comes up in the search engine too because people manipulate that, right? They put PSA 10 in there when there's not a PSA 10. And yeah, maybe those are a little bit easier to catch, right? It's it's pretty obvious when there's not a, a giant plastic slab around a card, right? But there are some more subtle ones too. If you're looking at it from maybe a 130 point on your phone and you're not pulling up the photos of the cards, there are some times that people list it as a PSA 10, but it goes for a nine. And all of a sudden you see this lower sale on a 10 and you're like, ooh, wait a minute here. But that's really not true. I've accidentally listed cards that were PSA 9s as 10s and PSA 10s as 9s. It happens. Sometimes people just make mistakes when they're listing. I've certainly fat-fingered my uh, fair share of listings over the years. So, again, it's only as good as the information that you put in and the information that the sellers have used as well. We've said this several times now on the show the search engine optimization for sellers is, is crucial. And if they're not making it so that you can find the card through a simple search, then that is going to significantly reduce the number of eyes on that card. So uh, what can you do with that is that I would say that you want to keep your search terms as vague as possible. And if you're looking for a specific card, you'll want to be able to identify that as well. You know, the more vague you are, the more search results you'll get, but that may also turn up more results of something that you're not necessarily looking for. Like in the case of the Glaber, you may be pulling up more of those factory sets rather than the uh, card 698 short print from, or 699, I think it was, I think Akuna is 698, pardon me for that. Uh, but it may turn up results for the wrong card when you're doing that. So. That is something that you that you should certainly keep in mind. Or if you even think that a dealer, if they're trying to show you something or someone trying to sell you a card is trying to show you these data points and they're not accurately gauging the value of their card, call them out. Tell them, well, I, I think you're searching for this. <laughs> you want to be polite about it, of course. You know, you don't want to be like, oh, you're an idiot. You said this. This is not how you do it. No, be, be respectful, of course. But uh just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's true, right? And just because a dealer pulled it up on their phone doesn't mean that that is the uh, that that is gospel. That is the end all be all. So, all five of these points really tie together. And of course, the the fifth point there, the information is only as good as what you enter. That's crucial to nail that down before we talk about shield bidding or uh, considering different platforms where things are sold on or supply and demand. You have to be able to enter in the information to the best of your ability to uh, the most beneficial way possible to you as well before you can really proceed. But all of this boils back down to trusting your intuition. If something doesn't look right, challenge it. 
that's one of my biggest tools that I use when searching for inventory as a dealer is that I will kind of scroll through and look at things or perhaps I'm walking around a show and I'll stop and I'll look and I'll say, that doesn't look right. Something about that. And some of that just comes from experience and dealing with these cards every single day. I do have that advantage where I'm constantly exposed to this. And even if I'm not consciously making an effort to study these prices, uh, my eyes are, are scrolling down the page and I'm seeing this data and subconsciously it's getting driven into the back of my mind or I just, I kind of get that pulse, that sixth sense for when something doesn't seem right at a price. So it's, it's something that you can't really teach. I think it's just something that comes with experience, right? But trusting your own intuition or if you are uh, less experience and you're entering the hobby and you're not sure exactly how to use these tools or you're just not familiar with them, rely on those who you trust to give you accurate information or just trust your gut. Uh, another key takeaway that I want people to have from this is that, yes, we all want to get the most we can when selling. Yes, we all want to get the best deal as possible when buying. But ultimately, it's a decision where you have to make the best decision for you. And even if a card is selling for x amount but you really want it considering again that supply and demand considering how likely you are to see it again considering your other options for buying the card is it something that you need to do in this specific auction transaction show do you need to get it at that exact moment and really answering that question for yourself and being able to make those decisions on your own will help you a lot more than the eBay completed search tool will in the long run. It's one of those teach a man to fish, give a man a fish type of situations. So I hope that you found this information helpful and kind of, I guess, a way to dissect why completed sales are so prevalent, but also what are some of the flaws in the mindset that have developed from our heavy reliance on using the completed sales I would love to get a lot of feedback on this episode in the comment section down below on YouTube to really see what the pulse of the hobby is on completed sales. Is it something that you use? How often do you use it? And how are you using it? I think is the most important question to uh, to answer. And if you're someone who's listening to this on YouTube and you're a little late to the party, hey, no worries. But uh, go read those other comments because you, I learn things from the comments every single time that I reply to them. And you never really know when you're going to see something that really challenges your way of thinking and maybe opens your mind to different possibilities or things that maybe you didn't previously consider. Uh, that has always been the objective of this show since the first episode and will continue to be so as to uh, really challenge our core beliefs and challenge our hobby mindsets on various topics. So as always, you can find me through all of my socials linked in the YouTube description down below or in the show notes. If you're listening on Apple Podcast or Spotify, you can also visit the eBay store, closing in on 37,000 unique listings, cards from all different types of sports, over 50,000 cards total, including the duplicates. Little something for everyone, regardless of your budget or your interest. Make sure you check out the store. Always appreciate you giving the podcast a listen. And we'll be sure to see you next Thursday with a new episode. I'm not sure exactly who the guest will be. It will depend on uh, which episode gets recorded first. But uh, some very fun conversations are planned and are in the works for some future episodes. So can't wait to see you then. Until next time, 
Take care, stay safe out there, be kind, and enjoy your hobby to the best of your ability.